Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 31 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lundrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to talk about on this show today. We're going to be talking about, of course, stuff going on overseas in another country right now, something that involves the participation of every other nation in the world. You guys all probably know what I'm talking about. We are going to be talking about, of course, the latest issues affecting us right here in the United States, including two of the most devastating, most complicated, most problematic issues, immigration and COVID. And for the main topic, we are going to be addressing a something that I referred to, uh, Jacob and I were talking about this off the air, what could be called the mainstream sequel to another long-form article that we covered for the main topic of a previous episode, both of which have to deal with critical race theory. But to start off, I just got to talk about the fact that, you know, the Olympics are going on right now, right? Jacob, you and I, when we were having lunch earlier today, we saw the Olympics playing on a TV in the background. And a friend of ours just kind of remarked like, oh, yeah, we saw like an archery thing going on. And then there was a, a very intense game of ping pong. We couldn't help but notice that like the ratings have plummeted on NBC. The ratings for the Olympics are like at, a, I think, like a 33-year low. And what I noticed, you know, what I mentioned to uh, our friend at lunch was I noticed that these Olympics in particular, these Summer Olympics, are more about the stories surrounding the Olympics themselves rather than the results of the actual events. You know, there's controversies. There's a new controversy about these Olympics every single day, whether it's the declining ratings, the all kinds of the woke virtue signaling, to, I guess, the Norwegian volleyball team refused to wear the industry regulatory uh, swimsuits or something. They're getting fined for it to a couple of athletes that were forced to withdraw due to drug use. And now, apparently, the latest controversy surrounding the Olympics is something regarding one of the most famous athletes, one of the most famous American athletes today, the gymnast Simone Biles. So, Jacob, what's uh, what's going on with uh, Miss Biles? What's the right take on that situation? Well, she pulled out of the team competition right before they were uh, going to compete, and um, she cited her mental health. So, from this from USA Today, it said uh, it says distraught Simone Biles pulls out of the Olympic team final on Tuesday, leaving the middle of the competition after struggling to land a vault. She said, quote, after the performance that I did, I didn't want to go into any of the other events second-guessing myself, so I thought it was better if I took a step back and let these girls go out there and do the job, and they did just that. The problem is they didn't do just that. Like They got silver when the U.S. was – I mean with Simone Biles would have been the clear favorite to win the gold. The Russian Federation uh, team, which they call it that because Russia was kicked out for uh, for doping – and they have some kind of loophole where they can uh, have a Russian Olympic committee and represent them. But they ended up getting the gold. The U.S. took silver without Simone Biles. And so the other girls didn't do just that. Like they, they weren't good enough to, to win the gold without, without Biles. And uh, she says that she's been trying to cope with the stress of competing at the Tokyo Olympics. She says, quote, I was still struggling with some things. Uh, she says, uh, she says therapy has helped a lot as well as medicine. That's been going really well. Whenever you get in high stress situations, you kind of freak out and don't really know how to handle all these emotions, especially at the Olympic Games. So my initial thought when I read the headlines was that she had had a medical condition. I thought there was something physically wrong with her. And that, I think that was what a lot of people thought, that she had injured herself or whatever. But no, she was just feeling stressed and she decided to take herself out. At right in the middle of the right in the middle of the performance, she just just decided, you know what, I can't handle the stress. I'm just going to sit this one out. And the U.S. ends up instead of what would have been probably an easy gold, they end up taking silver. So basically, her excuse was just she was just having a bad day. Basically, that's it. That that that's literally it. They asked her in a press conference. We're going to play that clip in a minute if she had uh, any if she had any injuries or anything. And no, no she was uh, just having a bad day. And she cited. And what was what's ridiculous about this is as soon as she decided to do this. Everyone's, of course, the news media, they've got to try to create some kind of social justice narrative. 
Yeah, whether it's the Britney Spears thing or, you know, now now this, I guess, like especially regarding celebrities. You know, every time a celebrity now claims that they're mentally ill, people just take them at their word for it. Like, you know, and the Britney Spears thing, like, yeah, clearly she was mentally ill back in the day when she was shaving her head and stuff. Now, maybe she's cleaned up her act. I don't know. Well, in this case, yeah, it's not like, you know, Biles is going around having crazy fits of rage in public or anything like that, at least not to my knowledge. But she just apparently was just not feeling well and dropped out, which, OK, yeah, you're having a bad day. That happens in sports. That's not mental illness, not by a long shot. But the CNN headline after she decided to drop out was, we're people at the end of the day, says Biles, as mental health moves to the top of Tokyo 2020 ad agenda. I don't think mental health is moving to the top of the 2020 Tokyo agenda. I think the Olympians themselves and the teams themselves and the sporting, the competitions are still at the top of the agenda in Tokyo. I don't think the Olympic Committee is sitting around saying, okay, since Simone Biles decided to concentrate on her mental health rather than taking one for the team and just going through with what she had signed up to do and what her country expects her to do, we're now going to change the focus of the Olympics to focus on mental health. And this really shows the mentality, the mindset of the people who run the news media. And it's not just the news media, it's politicians, it's activists. They believe that everything in life, every sport, should take a backseat, whether it's competition, whether it's business, everything should take a backseat to personal struggles and group struggles. And just as an example, you know, you would think that this would be some, this would be an issue would be focusing on Simone Biles as a person on the US the team USA, but no, no, of course not. Corey Bush, Congresswoman for Missouri's first congressional district, said she tweeted, quote, I stand with Simone Biles. I still stand with Naomi Osaka. Your health and peace matters. You're reminding black women that we can take the space we need for ourselves. This Twitter handle known as uh, the name is Wyatt. The only reason why I cited it was because they got a pretty huge following. They had a pretty interesting take on this. So this person said, so Simone Biles is a coward and a loser. She is officially the first post-American athlete and a taste of things to come. The people defending her are cowards and allowed this to happen by pumping her up and gaslighting her. Our elite class should be ashamed. And it shows several screenshots of uh, people building Simone Biles up, like just creating ridiculous expectations for us. Walking away from your team because of mental health is the final, uh, in the final, is not an excuse. Sorry, sweetie, you are in the Olympics if you have mental health problems. There are hundreds of girls who can take your place. You let down your team and your country. It didn't used to be like this. The American spirit used to exist. People had undying love for their country, real patriotism that allowed them to overcome real challenges and trials. That doesn't exist anymore because America is a shopping mall now, not a country. In 1996, an American girl by the name of Carrie Strong tore her entire effing shit during the final face off against Russia, a third degree lateral sprain. She didn't walk off. She didn't get an ambulance ride. She didn't do anything other than ask her coach what needed to be done. He told her, quote, we need this to win, end quote. Then history happened. American history. Real history. We could go over the racial issues of Simone and how she was put into an unasked for position as the quote unquote black magic girl or black girl magic that is now in the past few years become endemic where for America to be good black men and women have to be the spearhead of everything to fix racism. I wonder if the elites of this country ever asked themselves if it would be a good idea to tell a young girl the country hates her and then ask her to represent the country that hates her and to be the best gymnast ever too. No wonder she walked out. What can we do to fix this? This person asked. Nothing. America as a real nation is over. It's now just a place like Canada, a shopping mall where people work to buy new things, raise their children to hate their history, a place that nobody would ever really die to protect. 
And she goes on mentioning and arguing that this person, it's a picture of a girl, I'm assuming it's a female, but uh, goes. this person goes on to argue that nothing will ever realistically bring this country together because we're at the point where it has become mainstream to criticize the country and attack the country. And just as an example, another Twitter handles, uh, Dragonfly Jones, who has, uh, or I believe it's 150,000 followers, said, quote, I was invested in seeing Simone Biles rack up on gold medals this summer for, in italicized, herself. Never cared about her, quote unquote, doing it for America. F this country, man. So if Simone says it ain't her right now, then so be it. Still the goat. And what's interesting is every single major politician, public figure had to come out and give support to Simone Biles. They all tweeted their support, talking about bragging about how she's the greatest ever. She's the goat of gymnastics. Now they stand with her and her decision to look after her mental health, to take care of herself first. You know, all this, you go girl, you go queen, you look after number one first. And nobody, literally nobody cares one whit about America, about how this makes the United States look. Our top gymnast decided to drop out and let the lesser good gymnast take the heat because she was feeling a little bit stressed. And what's even more ridiculous and really infuriating is Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney tweets like twice a month, like the guy hardly ever tweets at all. Is he, that from his official account or from his alt uh, Pierre Delecto <laughs> account? Because uh, you, count, you count that, he probably tweets a he, lot more. Than he, I believe he probably <laughs> tweeted a lot more from his uh, Pierre Delecto account than he does from his original his uh, official account. But he decided to chime in and said, quote, I love and admire Simone Biles and our Olympians. Beyond their determination and sacrifice, they evidence the greatness of the human spirit in victory and defeat. I take pride in them, not so much for the medals they win as for the grace, humanity, and character of their hearts. Uh, can the guy just switch parties already? Like, seriously? Uh, he alter but th what's interesting is he doesn't tweet at all. Like, his last tweet he, was a retweet a day ago, and before that it was July 12th. Before that it was July 6th. And then you got to go back to, I mean, June to find his previous tweet. So it's not like he's tweeting every other day or even every day like, like Trump did, and this is just one of many. No, he, he made a specific uh, – he decided to throw Simone Biles a name in there. And, uh, you know, talking about the greatness of the human spirit uh, and victory and defeat, well, she – wasn't really defeated, didn't really win. I mean, she just went home and she decided to quit. Yeah, it was neither. It's it's not a victory or a loss. She just kind of, it's, this isn't even like, you know, I, I like to think, I can't help but think to make comparisons between this and uh, the Serena Williams fiasco. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, three yes. years ago where she, uh, of course, in America, no less, in a stadium in New York, uh, faced off against Naomi Osaka, who is in the Olympics right now, I believe, actually, uh, and is, of course, the tennis championship. And, Osaka was beating her fair and square. She was just a better player. And Williams's response was to start throwing a hissy fit on the court. She literally smashed her racket and started like yelling at the umpire and everything. And just, of course, lost. But she got several penalties, which contributed to her loss. And then the whole audience like booed for Osaka as she won. And just like, and Williams continued to make it like a, a race and sex thing, even though the, the guy, the umpire himself, was a Hispanic man. So that, that would be quite an interesting clash. It wasn't like it was some evil white guy or anything. But she said, oh, no, this is all just because I'm, I'm a black woman, you know, not because I, I'm a sore loser and, you know, maybe I'm just past my prime. But the, this is different in a lot of ways because, no, she's not displaying clearly unsportsmanlike conduct, like smashing equipment and, you know, yelling at the umpires or anything. But she certainly abandoned her team. She literally left her team. As you said, they were the favorite to win with her being the MVP. And, of course, she's gone and they lost to the Russians. So definitely no sense of loyalty there. 
And the fact that she is deflecting from her own personal failures by, oh, I'm just mentally ill. Which, well, okay, if you're mentally ill, you shouldn't be competing in the Olympics to begin with. Because it's a very stressful regimen, I imagine, between the training and then certainly going all the way to Japan and participating. It's just, there are two... Sim- I can't help but make comparisons between those two situations. Yeah, but the what they're trying to do is make this more common, where if if an athlete is not feeling good, if they're not feeling right, they feel like they're off their game, they can just say, "Okay, well, I I, f- I need some me time. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna I'm just gonna drop out." Kind of like, like if you're the, the YouTuber apology. You know, I, I need a break. You know, I I've been going through mental issues. Right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I, I just I dropped that racial slur because I've been going through some uh, some mental issues, so I'm just gonna take some time off. It's kind of like if you're in the Super Bowl at halftime. And your quarterback is just doing terrible. The quarterback just decides, you know what? I, I'm holding the team back. I'm just going to sit the second half out. I'm going to let the backup quarterback carry it all on his shoulders. That's that's essentially what Simone Biles did. And in case anybody's wondering if she actually did have any physical ailment, uh, let's listen to her in her own words. I just felt like it would be a little bit better to take a back seat, uh, work on my mindfulness and i knew that the girls would do an absolutely great job and i didn't want to risk the team a medal for uh kind of my screw-ups because they've worked way too hard for that so i just decided that those girls need to go in and do the rest of the competition that only works if you're like you said the, the quarterback comparison is perfect if you are essentially this team's equivalent of the quarterback, you're the star, you're the MVP, mm-hmm. that's not to their benefit. That's to their detriment. If you're one of the, you know, the bench warmers, then sure, that argument totally makes sense. Oh, I'm dragging the team down. G- go on without me. Go on without me. But that's not, it doesn't work in this case. Well, I mean, you got to keep in mind, she needed to focus on her mindfulness and uh, she didn't want to have any more screw-ups. You know, she had a few screw-ups earlier in the day and she needed to be focused on her mindfulness. If we, if we could all just focus on our mindfulness and you know, get in touch with our inner self and we could create a lot better, better vibes for the world, you know, and not be so focused on competition. <laughs> yes, this one. Simone, I want to ask you just a follow up. And I know these are personal issues you're talking about. If you could sort of tell us, was there any injury? That, that was one thing we want to know. And if you can elaborate on maybe the stress you've been feeling, we all know when you're in the spotlight, uh, we right. can imagine what it's like. Right. No, um, no injury, thankfully, and that's why I took a step back because I didn't want to do something silly out there and get injured, so I thought it was best if these girls took over and did the rest of the job, which they absolutely did. They're Olympic silver medalists now, and they should be really proud of themselves for how well they did last minute having to go in. and it's been really stressful, this Olympic Games, I think, just as a whole, um, not having an audience. There are a lot of different variables going into it. It's been a long week. It's been a long Olympic process. It's been a long year. Um, so just a lot of different variables, and I think we're just a little bit too stressed out. Um, but we should be out here having fun, and sometimes that's not the case. Okay, <laughs> several things I just have to – oh, my goodness. Well, first off, she said that – I didn't want to injure myself. I didn't want to do something stupid and injure myself. Then why are you in the Olympics? You're always going to risk getting injured if you're in the Olympics. That's that's kind of that's what you're signing up for. You're signing up for that risk. That's just such a non-argument right there. Two, she says, oh, they pull off. They did the job they were supposed to. They're silver medalists now. They were supposed to be gold medalists. Yeah, we're Biles. we're Americans. We don't take second place, especially to the Russians. And <laughs> if you look, if you Russians. look at our medal count right now, we're in third place. Didn't we get? We failed to get like a single gold medal on the first day. Is we've that got. Right? I think. I believe that's correct. Well, we're we're at eleven gold medals. Um, just a second. Let me look this up. So as of right now, Japan and China are both leading the United States in medal counts. I and mean, we have more overall medals. 
at 31 to their 27-22, but uh, we're racking up a bunch of bronze and silver. I mean, they're, they're racking up the gold. But the idea that this is creating is that athletes can put themselves above their country when they're in, when they're competing. Because it's, it's not just a matter of team spirit. You're on the same team. We're all fighting for the same objective to win. It's not like the New York Jets versus the Dallas Cowboys. This is a matter of your nation going against another nation. Like in, if, if tensions were to flare up, we could be going to war with any of these countries and literally killing these people. So it's not just about... Okay, well, it's just a game. Let's all get. And one of, one of her criticisms at the end of that interview, at the end of that uh, press conference, was that it's uh, really stressful. It shouldn't be that way. Where you should really be out there having fun. Okay, sport in general is fun, but when you're in the Olympics, this is war by other means. This is our nation against their nation. Silver isn't good enough if you could potentially get gold. And with Simone Biles in, okay, I realize she's not probably not as good. I mean, she's very clearly not as good as she was in 2016. It's just the way it is. She's 24 years old. That's really the gymnastics is really the only sport where you kind of get over the hill whenever you stop being a teenager, like whenever you get into your early 20s. But she's still better than the other Americans on the team, and she could have probably helped them win gold. But the idea that she would put herself above her country and her team really underscores what that one Twitter user was pointing out, that we're not really a country anymore. We're a collection of different peoples and interest groups who all use this country as a shopping mall. And so when we're out there competing against another country, our athletes aren't going to risk their own health for the gold medal, like our athletes 20, 30, 40 years ago would. If this was during the Cold War, our athletes would have risked their health. They would have done anything necessary. They would have gone out there with a sprained ankle, you know, with, with a cut-up knee that had done anything necessary to get that gold medal, especially going against Russia. I mean, yeah, at the they time, the USSR. They wouldn't give up prior to the miracle on ice. You know, the, the fact that we didn't give up is what led to the miracle on ice. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, and if it were something physical, I could understand. Like, if you're physically, if you're injured, that's one thing. But when you're just stressed out and you're going to blame it on mental health, and this is kind of the trend, everybody wants to blame their social awkwardness or any kind of, if they're rude, they want to blame it on mental health. You know, they snap at somebody. Oh, sorry, that's just, I've got mental health issues I've got to work through. You know, they cuss somebody out. Oh, oh, sorry, that's just a mental health issue. That's just, everything's an issue. Nobody wants to take any personal responsibility for anything. They want to blame all of their shortcomings on mental health. And that's the new, you know, just to kind of create a culture where nobody takes personal responsibility for anything. And, uh, you know, it's just – and it kind of mirrors the basketball team. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the, the U.S. basketball team, but in the pre-qualifier games um, I don't, or the scrimmage games, we played Nigeria, and then we played Australia, and we got our butt kicked by both. And our, our team is stacked full of NBA players, Nigeria. Australia. Then, and the very first people are saying, "Oh, it's just a fluke. They'll get their act together." We go up against France, and we get outscored in the final. I think it was the final two minutes, sixteen to two by France. And then we get beaten by Jamaica's bobsled team. Uh, yeah, well, th that would that would be next. Thankfully, <laughs> we did beat Iran. I mean, they did beat whip up on Iran, which was kind of a kind of a slam dunk. But the idea, and then France, they have NBA players, and they're not even really superstars, and they still kicked our butt. But overall, the United States is really doing a very poor job compared to previous years. And I think it really is a mirror of the morale of the country. Americans aren't tuning into the Olympics because why would they? I mean, if you've been indoctrinated in the critical race theory and believe in that the country is racist, why would you cheer on a country like that? Especially if you're especially if you happen to be black and buy into this narrative. You know, why would you root for the country? It's kind of like that black Twitter user said he was hoping to see Simone Biles rack up gold for herself. 
he, well, he couldn't give two Fs for this country. It's not it's not about the country. And that's the thing about, I feel like a lot of the basketball players, I mean, most of these basketball players, they completely buy into the BLM narrative. So what are they fighting for? Do they want to risk injury when that could compromise their NBA career in the fall? No, of course not. This is just basically just fun and games at the Olympics. Between COVID, certainly, and everything else affecting Americans' lives here and now, you know, they, they have, don't have time to even care about something like the Olympics. And, of course, on top of all the virtue signaling, people just don't care anymore. It's, there are more important things to care about right now, like COVID. Speaking of COVID, for our next topic, I, I had to I, – I wrote an article for this this morning at American Greatness. When I saw this original story, I just I, – I, I, I felt my blood boiling when I read this. There's so many aspects of the story – that just blow your mind. A whole new level of insanity and downright traitorous behavior, in my opinion, in the immigration crisis we're dealing with right now. Because illegals are still flowing across the border every single day, guys. There are still tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of illegals coming across the border. And in addition to the fact that they're illegals, you know, who bring nothing but crime and lower wages to our country and to the detriment of the American workers, they are also bringing the coronavirus because obviously they're coming from countries with much poorer healthcare systems, poor hygiene in general, and they're not being tested properly, they're not being treated properly, and they're coming in here with the coronavirus. So what's happening to those illegals who are found at the border to have coronavirus? They're being let go, and charities, private, quote-unquote, religious charities, are working with the federal government to give them free housing and let them wander around American towns. Headline. COVID-positive illegal aliens in Texas staying in charity-provided hotel, infecting people in restaurants. This is from La Jolla, Texas. Sergeant Manuel Casas of the La Jolla Police Department said in a statement on Wednesday that on Monday earlier in the week, a police officer was flagged down by a concerned citizen at a Whataburger in town. I've heard a lot about Whataburgers. I have not yet actually been to one, but friends of mine here on the East Coast say that they are a pretty good place. Jacob, have you ever been to a Whataburger? I have. They put one in my town when I was at community college in my uh, sophomore year of college. It's pretty good. I definitely need to expand my uh, my taste palette a little bit here more. So It's basically the In-N-Out of Texas. Okay. Well, hopefully hopefully it's a little bit better than In-N-Out then because I'm from California, and I know all my California friends are going to hate me for this, but I think In-N-Out is garbage. That's just me. But maybe Whataburger is better. The individual reported to the police officers that there was a large family of illegal aliens inside the restaurant visibly displaying signs of sickness, including coughing and sneezing without making any effort to cover themselves in violation of basic health guidelines. So this isn't even COVID. This isn't even mask wearing. This That's just basic human decency. You cough, you sneeze, you cover it with your elbow or your hand or something. You don't, you don't do that. They're just being very unsanitary. And the manager confirmed – the manager of the Whataburger confirmed to the officer that they wanted them kicked out of the restaurant because – Everyone else, all the other customers, felt uneasy at their presence. So upon approaching the group, the officer was informed by the illegals sitting at the table that they had been apprehended at the border by Border Patrol agents several days earlier. They had tested positive for the coronavirus and were released a few days later regardless. He then eventually managed to get more information out of them, which led them to a nearby Texas Inn and Suites. When the hotel manager was questioned by police, the police were told that the entire hotel had been rented out exclusively for housing of illegal aliens by a group <laughs> called Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. How would you like to work at that hotel? How would you the hotel, forget about the hotel? The hotels, I mean, they're partially at fault here. I mean, but realistically, it's this charity. Quote, we have an understanding, Cassis explained, based on what was told to us, that the hotel in totality had already been rented out. The information we have is that everyone that is staying in that hotel is COVID-19 positive, COVID positive 
and it's being rented out for them. Good grief. A Catholic charity. Catholic, quote-unquote. Jacob, there's a phrase we've, I think we've discussed on the show before. You mentioned uh, with so-called religious people who really just pull out what's called a pocket god, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. basically they, they claim they're religious when it's convenient for their political beliefs, and they whip God out of their pocket. Because I don't know about you, man. I don't think it's very Christian to um, actively, or very Catholic or either way, to actively foment a health crisis that, for the benefit of criminals— that is to the detriment of your fellow citizens. Like, mm-hmm. okay, okay, forgive the sinner, for, forgive the criminal, what, whatever. Okay, like, Jesus, I, I get that. But to the detriment of other people, that's a problem that is affecting, it's affecting our economy, and it's affecting the health of every regular American citizens who are staying hygienic, they're taking care of themselves, and they're in a restaurant trying to enjoy their food, and they're getting affected by these people who should not be here. Yeah, these people don't have jobs. Like, they don't have any income. They're staying at a hotel... Probably a r- already a rundown hotel anyway, but still, they're staying at a hotel for free. They're sick as dogs, and they don't have any way to bring in income. So what are they doing if they want to go, you know, if they want a nicer TV? How do they get that TV? You know, you just kind of fill, fill in the blank yourself. That's another thing. They're not contributing anything to the country. But they're not even being quarantined at this point. They're being tested, confirmed positive, and released. Mm-hmm. Authorities are – they're not even – I know a few months ago the Biden administration did say they were working on actively like testing and they were quarantining these people. But now they're being released to a private charity, which obviously this charity is not going to put restrictions on them. The charity can't lock them down like federal authorities could, you know, keep them quarantined. They were quarantining them in hotels. Some federal authorities were. But the charity is saying, oh, you can stay at the hotel, but you can still – you can go out and about. How are they even able to afford the food? How are they able to pay for their food at a Whataburger? Who gave them the money for that? That's, I don't, that's another good question. I don't imagine they carried a bunch of money all the way from Nicaragua or wherever they're coming from. Like, this is oh, this this is just disgusting. This and again, this is what should happen. This won't happen because Biden is in office now. But man, if Trump was in power, that he should have ordered his Department of Justice to to respond to this by raiding the headquarters of that charity and arresting everybody, everyone at the top of that charity mm-hmm. for colluding with foreign actors illegal aliens, and actively renting out American hotels, American property to house sick people in the midst of a pandemic. This is the problem, too. This is this is something I have to point out. I thought about this a while ago. I've got the answer here. People were saying, oh, there's another surge of the coronavirus. We're in the middle of, like, what, the seventh or eighth wave, I guess, right now of coronavirus. I don't know, the India variant slash Delta variant, whatever. And Biden and what they're doing in Saki, you know, there's no White House. They are blaming this on the unvaccinated. You know, Biden literally said on the White House lawn to reporters as he was getting to Marine One, he was saying, they're killing people. We have a pandemic of the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated are killing people. It's those backward hillbilly Trump supporters who won't get no jab jab. You know, the, those are the people killing us. No, no. The, ca- the surge of this virus, again, this Delta variant, is because of these illegals. Mm-hmm. They're coming over here. They're obviously not clean where they're coming from, and they're not clean where they're going. They're not getting treated. They're not getting the vaccine. They're spreading this. They are the ones bringing it into a country that otherwise is locking down. Like They're locking us down again. Lots of Americans are getting vaccinated. Lots of people are wearing masks. They're the ones causing this, not unvaccinated Trump supporters. And at this point last year when we had the second wave of coronavirus, well, actually at the end of June, um, Biden and the left were blaming people who weren't wearing masks. But it wasn't the conservatives who were staying at home not wearing masks. It was the Black Lives Matter activists getting out in the streets and yelling people's faces and massive groups spreading their saliva all over the place. That was who was that was who caused the second spike. 
But it is, again, as, as evil and infuriating as this is, it's clever on Biden's part. It's so clever because, of course, he knows the media on, is on his side. The media is not going to report on the border surge. They're not going to report on the fact that unvaccinated illegals are the ones causing this. They're going to give him a free pass, and they'll go along with this narrative because they're on his side. Oh, yeah, it's the unvaccinated Trump supporters who are spreading the virus. So uh, as a political move, it's genius on his part, but it's downright dangerous because this is not sustainable when you have just – this is blatant gaslighting, just straight-up gaslighting that – the answer's staring you at the face and screaming at you right in your face, and you're going to turn around and blame the people sitting in the back of the room who aren't doing anything. It's This is not going to end well, folks. This uh, on, this, on today's edition of This Is Not Sustainable, entry number 137, <laughs> This Is Not Sustainable, folks. Well, reading through the comments of the Fox News article on that particular story was a little bit disheartening just because so oh, many you people— You told me about this. Yeah, so many people on the right— when they read a story like this, rather than connecting the dots and saying, okay, it looks like the Biden administration has an agenda. That agenda is to flood the country with foreigners and then to blame the health crisis that these foreigners create on us. But instead, a lot of people on the right, particularly uh, a lot of retired, self-described retired folks, they don't connect those dots and they don't make that application. Instead, they come up with stuff like, well, it's so they're requiring masks for us, but not for them. Or they'll – many of them don't actually believe that the coronavirus exists. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of conservatives who still think coronavirus is a hoax and it's just a bad flu variant. I don't know anybody who's caught the coronavirus. Yeah, you get that a lot. And so they don't see – they don't make the connection that this is actually a very, very dangerous trend if you allow a bunch of – I mean it's dangerous if you allow illegals anyway. But especially whenever you got a global pandemic that is real, that is actually killing people and you allow a bunch of unvaccinated people to come into the country – who are not following health guidelines and they're spreading whatever new variant that they're carrying to American citizens. And instead of using this as a, I mean, this would be a perfect talking point. You could get conservatives and liberals on board to shut that border down over something like this. And this is something that even liberals who believe in a very lax immigration policies could get on board with and say, yes, we definitely need to stop immigration. What was, what were the words that Trump used? Uh, stop immigration until we figure out what's going on about talking about Muslims whenever they went. Uh, yeah, until Muslims. we could figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, that, I mean, you could get liberals that would use the same line of reasoning regarding COVID-19 and all of the so-called refugees who are coming over from Guatemala. But unfortunately, conservatives don't take that line. Instead, they're so focused on the, this, the big bad boogeyman that is the federal government and Bill Gates and whatever new conspiracy theory has come out that the elites are trying to control people's lives through COVID, that they're not focusing on the enemy coming in through the back door. And this enemy coming in through the back door, whether it's illegal immigrants coming to take on low-skilled jobs and whether it's the diseases that they're carrying, this is a far worse threat to Americans and America's future than mask mandates are. And unfortunately, the right, especially the older right, can't seem to recognize the threat of immigration because they have in many ways bought into this idea that we are a nation of immigrants uh, when uh, we were never intended to be a nation of immigrants. Speaking of mask mandates, uh, I ran across this earlier. You know, one of the things that governors have been uh, – Republican governors have been delivering on is ending mask mandates, ending lockdowns. Brian Kemp decided to issue an executive order earlier to make sure that public school children would not have to wear a mask. He said, quote, we're not going to have a mask mandate for our kids. Our teachers have the, have had the ability to get vaccinated. It certainly doesn't keep anyone from wearing a mask, end quote. His executive order, however, fell short of banning these mask, mask mandates in schools. So you have individual school districts that are now re-implementing mask mandates and Kemp can't do a single thing about it. And in fact, Fox News reached out to him for comment 
And his response was, quote, previous executive orders barred schools from using our state of emergency declaration to mandate masks. Hypothetically, they could still make masks part of their school dress code. Governor Kemp has consistently advocated for local control and ultimately does not believe that it is the state government's job to tell local school districts what to put in their individual dress codes. <laughs> so he's going to so he's going to ban masks so he can, I guess, and put in his ads and his mailers to his donors who live in rural areas that he has stopped school children from being forced to wear masks. All he did is allow school districts to refuse an order coming down from Atlanta. That just proves to me he literally doesn't know. I don't want to say he doesn't know his constituents. He doesn't understand that. How does he not know school boards are overwhelmingly left-wing and are going to do this? How does he not yet understand that? But also, it's kind of a toothless executive order because if he controls the government, he's not going to issue a mask mandate. So he's creating – he created an executive order. So I suppose if Georgia ever goes completely blue and they have a Democratic governor, so local school boards can buck the executive order from the Democratic governor – but all the all the Democratic governor has to do is sign a new executive order that overrides Kemp's executive order, forcing all the schools to comply. And you think the Democratic governor is going to believe that local school boards have autonomy? No, the Democratic governor is going to say, I'm the governor. I'm going to run the, st the state schools as I see fit. And this is the problem with Republicans. Republicans don't want to use power when they gain power. Voters elect Republicans to wield power against the left. Republican politicians get into office and they claim, well, I, I believe in limited government. I don't feel like I, I really need to do that. I'm just going to let these cities do whatever they want. And people will argue, well, if parents don't like it, they can move. That's not realistic. I mean, where are they going to move to? The middle of podunk nowhere in southeast Georgia where there's nothing but a bunch of cotton farms? If you're a cotton farmer, that's fine. If you're a businessman and your business is in Atlanta or your job is in Atlanta, you don't have a choice. You have to live in Atlanta. Your kids have to go to these schools and smother in masks. You don't have – and you're getting no relief from your Republican governor that you elected. So this is just nonsense. This is, this is what you see over and over and over again from conservatives, and this is why conservatism is bankrupt whenever it comes to actually accomplishing something. Conservatives can get elected, but when they get elected, all they do is they stop the freight train. And sometimes the freight train still keeps inching along the tracks while they're just grinding in their heels trying to stop it the best they can. But once they lose election, the freight train just keeps rolling because they didn't do anything to roll the freight train back when they were in office. I think somebody once said that uh, conservatism is just liberalism driving the speed limit. Yep. Yeah, it's, that's it's exactly not right. Actively, we need a, conservatives, a conservatism that will actually grind to a halt, which, we need, again, we need, with a freight train, that's very hard to do. But, you know, what else, what else can we do? We need our own freight train. We need a conservatism that believes in activism. So for the main topic, uh, the moment I saw this article, I knew we had to talk about this. And a uh, great minds think alike, Jacob had actually read the article separately before I told him about it. And we just mutually agreed, yeah, this is the main topic. So a little while ago, we did an episode for the main topic of a previous episode. We reviewed an article by Barry Weiss, the former New York Times editor who resigned due to the really hard left culture there. That Again, she, being a center-left individual, felt pushed out by the really radical far-left woke people there. And she wrote an article for City Journal, which is a nice, like, very uh, intellectual right publication about how she interviewed multiple wealthy parents, extremely, like, upper, like, rich, rich parents in Los Angeles and New York with kids in elite prep schools and boarding schools who were being indoctrinated with critical race theory and how secretly these parents, all white, of course, secretly don't like critical race theory at all. They, and their kids don't like it, but they don't dare speak up about it to the school board or to their friends, or they'll be ostracized and or maybe lose their jobs and their kids won't get to get that free ride into Harvard. So this article comes out in Politico. This is the mainstream sequel, I guess you could say, or maybe a spiritual successor to the Barry Weiss piece. Headline, quote, people are scared, end quote, 
Democrats lose ground on school equity plans. And basically the, the premise of this article is that critical race theory is being weaponized by the right correctly as a major shift in the culture war by the left that is clearly un-American. It's detrimental to American values. It seeks to completely rewrite or just wipe out the American founding and the virtues and the heroic accomplishments of our founding fathers. And it's also just inherently racist. It's literally just anti-white propaganda. Critical race theory, we've said before on the show, you have to break it down to the simplest terminology to explain to people who don't know what it is. Because the term by itself sounds kind of innocuous or just maybe academically confusing. Critical race theory. Critical race theory is three very simple steps. One, white people bad. Two, America was built by white people. Three, America bad. That's all it is. That's mm -hmm. what the theory says. So it's, it's anti-white and it's anti-American. And We've seen this in recent weeks. Democrats are starting to finally cave a little bit on critical race theory. They're kind of backing off in the sense that maybe they're not supporting it as much. You know, Mark Milley in that testimony before Congress, the chief chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, when he was asked about Ibram Kendi and other far left black nationalist works being read, being recommended in the military. He said, oh, I, I don't know what critical race theory is. You know, he played stupid, but then said he still supported it. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, the nominee for governor of Virginia here, said in an interview a while ago that he says, oh, critical race theory is a conspiracy theory created by Donald Trump and Glenn Youngkin. Again, that's the Republican nominee for governor. He says, oh, that's not real. That's not us. We're not doing that. And then Joy Reid had an interview uh, with on MSNBC with uh, Chris Rufo, one of the leading investigative journalists, really just hammering away and chipping away at the mountain of critical race theory and breaking it down in some great investigative work and some great articles. And she was being, she was pulling a Kamala, like in the vice presidential debate. She was being very smug, grinning and giggling and shaking her head. And just like, no, honey, you're wrong. No, that's wrong. No, that's not critical race theory. Oh, that person's not a critical race theorist. You don't know what you're talking about. These are just words. She's playing semantics and you can tell it's a nervous reaction because she has no response to his arguments, obviously, as he demolished every aspect of critical race theory and criticized it. She, and you can tell that's a sign she was scared. Again, she's trying to laugh off the pain, but she's scared. The left is getting scared. I think they are certainly getting killed in internal polling by this because, spoiler alert, oh, big surprise, Americans don't like being told they're racist or that their country is racist. So this article claims, and this article kind of follows that Terry McAuliffe, Joy Reid narrative, that Republicans and the right are misrepresenting critical race theory. They're saying, oh, they're conflating equity training with anti-whiteness and anti-Americanism. Well, no, that's literally what equity training is. Any of this equity crap, though, we all just want to be equal. Like, yeah, that's the same thing the gay marriage advocates said back in 2013, and now we've got trans toddlers running around. So <laughs> and they, they're framing this as, oh, those those dastardly Republicans are really good at misrepresentation. Gee, that's that's some good projection right there. It's not like the left doesn't ever misrepresent anything we do or say. But I, I come away from that thinking, hey, this, this is good. The article is acknowledging, yeah, they're framing it as, oh, the Republicans are basically lying about critical race theory is. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's working. The very last quote of the article is from an individual who says, quote, it's irrelevant what the facts are. It's the way it makes people feel, end quote. And it's this kind of ominous note of like, ooh, misinformation is changing people's minds. I say good. If, a, it's not if misinformation, but B, even if it was, it's necessary to defeat the left because that's what they've been doing is winning on misinformation for years. Yeah, they don't care about the facts of the situation and this idea that well, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, feelings don't care about, about facts. your facts. Exactly. Feelings are what drive voters to the polls, not facts. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always going to be. The they average – They don't go vote for you know who's got the highest percentage tax plan. They go to vote for someone who's going to protect their family. Right. The average voter does not – especially the average working class voter does not have time to sit down and pour over economic graphs. 
They don't have time to look at budget graphs to see what this politician's proposed budget is going to do to the national debt in 20 years versus this proposed budget is going to do the national debt in 20. They don't have time for that. I've got to get my daily dose of the debt to GDP ratio right now. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen. When they come home and crack open a yingling or whatever their, uh, drink, of, their uh, drink of preference is, that's not what they're Coors thinking Light. about. So the average Budweiser. person – uh, corona in these God, days. God help you. Yeah, so the average voter does not know what critical race theory is. They couldn't define it. They've heard the term, but they don't know what it is. And they don't feel like they need to care what it is. The average voter is partisan. He's Democrat or he's Republican. If he hears Democrats criticizing something, he's going to be for it. If he hears if he's a Democrat and he hears Republicans criticizing something, he's going to be he's going to defend it. It's the same way with critical race theory. Democrat and Democrats right now are banking on partisanship. They know that they can't win with critical race theory because just of the demographics of the country. When you've got a country that's two-thirds white and they're pushing a theory that demonizes white people, that's a recipe for disaster. So what they're hoping is that the partisanship will kick in and they can paint it as a Republican tactic, as a Republican myth. And so whenever people bring up – it's kind of like with Antifa. If Republican brought up Antifa, people just shrug. Come on. Antifa is a myth. There's no such thing as Antifa. And there's a lot of people that actually believe that. I've met them. They believe Antifa is an idea. That's why when Biden said Antifa is an idea – Half the country thought he was right because half the country doesn't isn't on Twitter. Half the country doesn't watch videos of actual Antifa beating up little they, old grannies. They don't. Yeah, they don't follow Andy Knows investigative journalism about how they literally they, they, they all assault elderly couples and chase little girls through the streets of Portland. Like they, they don't know that's happening. Right. Thanks to the media because the media won't report on it. And we're a very we're so we're such a huge country that so many people are just able to live in their their quiet safe suburbs. And just let the world burn down because it doesn't affect them. And I'm going to get into that here in a second on how the uh, the the Republican boogeyman of crime really isn't an effective topic just because so many people live so far away from crime-ridden areas that it's not a daily reality in their lives. And realistically, when you're talking crime, yeah, like you said, you're only talking about the big cities. Well, who do the big cities always vote for? Democrats. They're not going to vote for you either way. I mean, there's a reason that Detroit and Chicago have had Democratic mayors for like the last 60 years. Yeah, you can talk about crime as a way to maybe scare rural voters if you get to them and think, oh, gee, this crime could be coming to a town near you. But otherwise, no, if you're talking to crime about crime to those inner city people to try to get them to vote for you. It's not going to work. Yeah, it's it's going to take more than that. Yeah, it's, it's not going to work because most of, most people in the inner cities, they're voting along ethnic lines. They're not voting for on issues. Or for the party that will give them more welfare, which Republicans will never do. But uh, this article from Politico is by Maggie Severns. She writes, Alina Kaplan is the kind of suburban mom who made Joe Biden president. An immigrant who came to the United States from the Soviet Union, she is a registered Democrat from San Mateo County, California. And she's alarmed over her state's new model ethnic studies curriculum, which cites critical race theory as a, quote, key theoretical, th key theoretical framework. And pedagogy. I guess that's how you pronounce that. Pedagogy. Um, I mean pedagogy, but I'm not entirely pedagogy. sure. She says, quote, I firmly believe that if the vast majority of Californians and Americans knew about this and about the content of this type of curriculum, and uh, this would not be happening. We would not be having this conversation, end quote. Kaplan, who has launched an email list, set up meetings with state legislators and recruited people uh, to meet with their school boards to discuss ethnic studies, is representative of Democratic-leaning or politically moderate suburbanites interviewed by Politico in six states – all but one of which were won by Biden. They are up in arms over their school system's new equity initiatives, which they argue are costly and divisive, encouraging students to group themselves by race and take proactivist stances. On the national level, Democrats have insisted that the brush fires over critical race theory, which have become a political punching bag even for unrelated equity initiatives, are largely the work of right-wing activists who willfully misrepresent what it means, and they blame Fox News for fanning parents' anger. 
Quote, that's another right-wing conspiracy. This is totally made up by Donald Trump and Republican candidate for Governor Glenn Youngkin, end quote, Virginia gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe said in June. Quote, I don't think we I don't I don't think we would think that educating the youth and next and future leaders of the country on systemic racism is indoctrination, end quote, said White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki in May. So this is a problem right here. So here's how she's framing it. She says that I don't think that we should criticize indoctr or she wouldn't say indoctrinating, she would say educating the next generation of Americans on the history of systemic racism. If you believe in systemic racism, you're already in the minority. Like you're wanting to force the majority of the country to believe in something that they don't believe in. You're wanting to force the majority of the country to send their kids to schools where they're going to be taught something that they don't agree with. This in itself is authoritarianism. This is totalitarianism. She just takes systemic racism for granted. Like we all agree that systemic racism exists. So why would you have a problem with teaching kids about it? But systemic racism doesn't exist. That, that just shows their smugness. They are so convinced like, oh, the facts show if we just told people the facts, they would agree with us. Well, again, these facts aren't facts. They're your facts. They're your reality. This is not a matter of we need to get the truth out to people. This is a matter of we need to better indoctrinate people to make them think that this is reality. But this is what happens when you control all of the institutions, because let's think if this were the Soviet Union and someone were criticizing something that was being taught. I don't know. Let's say about the Russian Revolution. Um, and, you know, if let's say if they were teaching that it was okay to kill people who opposed the Russian Revolution and you had a spokesperson that came out and said, I don't think that anyone would have a problem with educating our children about how it was okay to kill fascists or to kill the bourgeois. And they would just take that, that smugness, they would just take it for granted because they control the education system. And if you disagree with it, okay, well, you can go whine to your spouse about it. There's nothing you can do about it. And this is the mentality that Jen Psaki takes. It's like we control the education system. Our side controls academia. There isn't anything that you can do about it. So stop complaining. Just accept it. This is the way things are. Systemic racism exists, and we're going to teach your kids that it exists, and your kids are going to grow up believing that you were systemically racist because you happen to be white. So the article continues. But those Democrats appear to be underestimating parents' anger in places where critical race theory is top of mind. Objections to new equity plans are not the sole province of conservatives, but extend to many moderate and independent voters, according to Politico interviews with school board members, political operatives and activists in Democratic and left-leaning communities, including the northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., Palm Beach County, Florida, New York's Westchester County, Maricopa County covering Phoenix, Arizona, and suburban Detroit. The stakes aren't lost on Amanda Lippman, founder of the Democratic organization Run for Something, which works to elect school board members and other local officials. Quote, this is a perfect storm of something that can appeal to or draw back in some of the suburban parents that might have voted Republican in 2016, Democrat in 2018 and 2020, but it could be drawn back to the Republican Party in 2022. We're trying to argue, no, you're misdefining critical race theory, and that's not the point, Littman added. The point is that people are scared about what their kids are learning, end quote. And she kind of hits the nail on the on the head. And Politico is one of these outlets that tries to send warning signals to the Democratic Party. So what happened there, they're basically a Democratic operatives. If they see a trend that's working in Democrats' favor, they'll they'll push that trend. Kind of to send a message to the Democrat to the Democratic Party, hey, you need to go in this direction. This is a winning issue. If they see something the Democrats are doing that's causing trouble down the line. They'll try to sound the warning, say, hey, you need to back off of this. This could turn away suburban voters. This could turn away low information, moderate voters, and they could end up voting Republican. You need to back off of this. And that's kind of what they're trying to do, and especially interviewing Littman and including Littman's 
quotes on this. This is exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to send a message to the Democratic Party. Hey, this is this is a problem. This is going to turn off a lot of moderate and really low information white voters. And a lot of the white people who voted for Democrats, like in Loudoun County, Fairfax County, they don't know what liberalism is. They don't know what conservatism is. They don't pay attention to any of this stuff. They just live their lives like normal Americans. They live in safe communities, so they're not worried about anything. They live in high-income communities, so the economy isn't a factor in their lives. And when it comes time to vote, they just turn on the TV and it's like, okay, uh, you got Trump. He's old. Biden, he's old. Biden sounds a little bit nicer than Trump. I think I'll vote for Biden. They vote. They send in their mail-in ballot. They completely forget about it, and they tune out politics for the next four years or the next two years if they happen to vote in midterms. And what Politico is realizing is that a lot of these voters, it's hard, very hard for them to tune out politics when their kids are coming home telling them that they're racist when their kids are coming home and attacking their country and its history. When their kids come home and say that they are that the kids themselves are racist. Like, mommy, I found out I'm racist today. Correct. And, and the parents are like, what? But see, because you got to remember a lot of suburbanites, they have been indoctrinated to believe that we're going to eventually reach a utopian point in American in the American future in which race won't be a factor. Like they, they literally are under this impression that we're going to achieve a post-racial society when no one will care what color people are. And that's and this kind of is an issue of white privilege. This is where white privilege really is a thing, because if you're the majority ethnicity in a country, it's very easy for you to want to get to a point where nobody's going to care what ethnicity anyone is, because what that means is the entire country will have assimilated into your ethnicity. And this is why they want a post-racial society where everyone can be just like them. But so whenever they see something like this where racial differences are being uh, are being exaggerated or being emphasized, it kind of rubs them the wrong way because they've been taught to believe that a good liberal is a racially blind individual. But the article continues. Polling suggests that the majority of voters still aren't aware of critical race theory. But as the current debate is escalates, activists and Republican office holders are succeeding in giving voters a negative impression of it. As of mid-June, fully a third of voters told pollsters from the firm YouGov they hadn't heard of critical race theory, and only a third of voters said they had both heard of it and had a good idea of its meaning. See, this is an incredible lack of um, information in our country when you consider that two-thirds of voters don't know what critical race theory is when that was actually kind of an issue during the 2020 election. It just shows that the vast majority of people don't follow the news and they don't keep up with anything. Like they're all – everyone's – Americans are living in their own little world. That's why – it, you know, a lot of people say we're not a country anymore. We try to push back on that, but they're kind of right. A country has a body of citizens that follow the same news, that keep up with the same trends, that follow, that believe in the same things, or at least the you know similar hold similar values. When you have an issue like critical race theory that has become center, when you have an issue like critical race theory that's become center stage in American politics, and two thirds of Americans don't know what it is. You're in a country that doesn't know what's going on. People are just living in there. They're living for leisure. They're just living for themselves. And that's why it's the episode with Simone Biles makes perfect sense. In a country where everyone just lives for themselves and they don't care what happens around them, they don't pay any attention to what happens in their own country. You know, yeah, if you're feeling a little stressed, why not just give it a break and let your team lose? I mean, who cares? It's just about you. Everything revolves around you. It's very much the remnants of that libertarian mindset, though. Let everybody just do whatever they want. Let everybody live their own lives. Don't interfere with each other. You know, non-aggression principle, you know, don't violate my nap, bro. But, you know, that, again, that isn't going to work, you know? No, and that creates a very miserable country. Americans wonder why Europeans are so much happier than Americans. I mean, when you do surveys of, like, the ha like happiness and find out which countries are, 
are the happiest. Denmark, Sweden, Norway, the Germany, those countries rank much, much higher than the United States. And it's because people want to belong to something. And if you're living in a country that prioritizes individuality and doesn't really – it doesn't prioritize unity and group cohesion and togetherness, yeah, that country really isn't a very happy place to live in because it, it also breaks down social trust. A country with a high level of social trust tends to have a lot of ex very high excelling individuals because they have people around them that can help them. But it also tends to be a happier place because you don't have to worry about saying something that's going to offend the person walking in front of you. You can just speak freely. Um, but uh, that's kind of a tangent. But um, it, it does show that the fact that you've got two thirds of Americans don't know what this what CRT is really shows what a poor job that the news media has done. But Actually, the news media has actually been doing a really good job because their job is to keep people ignorant of this stuff because they – like Politico, they understand that once people start paying attention and learning what CRT is, they're going to start turning against the Democratic Party. So in a way, you could look at this as the news media has been doing their job because they hide certain topics from the American people that they don't want them to know about and they amplify other topics that they do want to know about that helps the political left. But opinions among those who'd heard of it were sharply negative. 53% said they were very unfavorable of it, while only 23% said they were very favorable. People who identified as Republican and had heard of critical race theory were especially negative. 85% termed their views very unfavorable. But the same was true of 71% of independents, the group that was key to Biden's victory over President Donald Trump. Among Democrats who had heard of critical race theory, most, 58%, were very favorable, while a smaller but still significant 7% were very unfavorable. So this this tells you something. A person, the Democrats are very much in line, are very much uh, in support of critical race theory. It's Republicans and independents that don't want to hear about it. They don't want to see it taught to their kids. So the idea that you're going to reach out to Democrats and win Democrats over um, is it, something that Republicans really should discard if they want to win elections. The path to victory does not lie in winning over Democrats. Most of the Democrats that were winnable were already won in 2016. Trump got those Rust Belt Democrats to vote for him. Many of them have already stopped being Democrats. A lot of the Trump voters have switched parties. Many of them have become independents. So the path for victory for Republicans lies with independents, not Democrats. One parent in Novi, Michigan, a diverse suburb outside, of, outside Detroit with prized public schools, said she started reading up on critical race theory after her daughter, a recent high school graduate, started raising the idea of defunding police departments and arguing that rioters who looted stores during 2020's Black Lives Matter protests were justified. The parent, who asked not to be named because of the heated politics in Novi, said she has in the past voted for Democrats, but she considers her daughter's ideas radical. She and other parents formed an anonymous group to question the school board. Quote, based on everything I have seen in the last year, starting with COVID, I cannot continue voting for Democratic candidates in good faith, she said. In Loudoun County, Virginia, a poll conducted by Public Opinion Strategies in early June for the anti-critical race theory advocacy group Fight for Schools found that 48% of independent voters and 59% of public school parents overall in Loudoun and neighboring Fairfax County viewed critical race theory negatively, while 31% and 39% of each group had positive views. But get this, Biden won Loudoun County by 62% to 37% over Trump and Fairfax by 70 to 28. So 59% of public school parents in Loudoun County, I'm, I'm sorry, let me back that up. 48% of parents overall in Loudoun County oppose critical race theory and only 31% support it. But Trump lost Loudoun County 62% to 37%. So do you think maybe first off, do you think these changing moods on critical race theory 
came after the election? Because that's certainly what like the Barry Weiss article and these articles kind of implies that, again, Biden certainly, yeah, the media and Biden did a good job covering up critical race theory. It didn't really start becoming an issue until after he won. Yes, because most people didn't know what critical race theory was when they voted. They didn't have any idea. what. If you asked the average voter in Loudoun County in 2020, what is critical race theory? They wouldn't have the faintest idea of what that means. They would have no idea, which is why it's so important that conservatives who want to see critical race theory defeated stop calling it critical race theory. Just call it what it is, anti-white indoctrination. If, if the, you've got a company that's offering an equity initiative, tell them, no, I don't, I'm white. I'm not going to participate in an, anti, uh, in an anti-white indoctrination um, uh, lecture or whatever. And that's, that's how you raise awareness of this because critical race theory, it sounds like an academic term, and it is an academic term. It, and this is why Democrats will argue public schools don't teach critical race theory. This is an academic discipline that's only taught in select universities. And to the average person, this sound this makes sense. Okay, well, it's like uh, gender studies. It's like, okay, well, we don't teach gender studies to kindergartners. That's a college course. You know, that's a university course. Or like, uh, I don't know, lesbian dance theory. People will up, be up in arms. I don't want my kids learning that. Well, we don't teach that. That's only some, um, some select universities. And it's the same way with critical race theory. That's why, you know, if you're if you're framing it as CRT, the average person, unless you sit them down and explain what it is, it doesn't mean anything to them. They don't actually start paying attention to what it is until their kids start coming home with the textbooks, until their kids start coming home with the ideas that they've been taught by their parents. So that's the issue. And um, I mean, you look at the numbers and I, I was kind of surprised. I didn't expect Trump to get blown out this badly in Loudoun County and Fairfax County, especially after the riots, after everything that happened. But this is really a failure on the part of the Republican Party and conservative media to break through the to suburban middle class voters. The average suburban middle class voter in this area reads The Washington Post, watches uh, watches not they don't watch Fox News, they watch CNN. And by and large, they believe what they read and see. Um, but but it, in terms of messaging since the election, obviously Republicans failed in 2020, but since then, the right – I don't want to say Republicans, but the right in general, prob probably led by Trump and some of his statements, have worked in this shifting of the tides in the attitude on critical race theory so that now, yeah, a majority of people polled who have heard of it don't like it. And obviously that's important. When you get the people who have heard of it, that's the first step so that, of course, the larger number of people who start to hear about it and continue getting these negative opinions, the better electoral prospects you have. But when you look at the numbers, you see 59% of parents in Fairfax County oppose critical race theory, 39% support it. These are numbers that uh, obviously Trump wasn't going to win these counties by these numbers. No. But when you look at, the, at how wide the gap is between parents who support CRT and parents who oppose CRT, Trump could have won Virginia. He could have won Virginia and he could have won these counties. He could have won Fairfax County. He could have won Loudoun County. The problem, even with the mail-in voting, the, the problem is the Republican Party and the right in general was late to the game. If they had been pushing the anti-CRT movement that they're pushing now, if they had been, if they had started as soon as Black Lives Matter hit the streets, they would have succeeded. And Trump would have swept Virginia. He would have swept these two counties. I, I would argue that he would have won in such a, a massive landslide that nothing that happened would have, um, you know, would have overcome that, would have uh, negated that. But um, – the, you know, if, if the right continues to push on critical race theory and continues to educate people, because as it stands right now, as this article shows, the issue with critical race theory and anti-white initiatives in general isn't that white people are self-deprecating. It's not that the overwhelming majority of white people are guilt-ridden. 
It's that the overwhelming majority of white people are living in their own comfortable suburban world, and they don't know what's going on outside of their own comfortable suburban world. Until their kids bring it home with them from school. Yes, and here's another example is in Palm Beach County. So the article states, in Palm Beach County, which voted 56 to 43 for Biden over Trump in 2020, a statement intended to increase equity in the district adopted in May quickly devolved into a heated dispute because the district uh, vowed in the five-paragraph statement that it would work to eliminate white advantage. It sparked hundreds of calls from parents concerned about how the phrase culminated in a school board meeting where dozens of parents testified they wanted white advantage removed. And parents, of course, were up in arms and saying, I'm not going to, my kids will not be taught to hate themselves because of the color of their skin. And, uh, you know, it just caused a big scene. So in May, the majority of Democrats on the school board, which is controlled by Democrats, sided with the protesters, which this shows that the side that yells the loudest wins. The side there is, the silent majority doesn't exist anymore. If you're a silent majority, you're going to lose. You're going to be dominated by the, by the minority. But in May, the majority of Democrats on the school board sided with the protesters and voted to edit the white advantage phrase out of the equity statement. But the local Democratic Party, of course, took action and censured those school board members with a resolution stating, uh, saying that they had betrayed the party's values. So the parties, the part, they're very open about it. The Democratic the party's, party's values, values is hating white people now. Hate I mean, whitey. Well, yes. Yes. But, that is, that is their values. Hate whitey. White people are racist. The country is racist and we need to fix the racism of white people. That is the position of the Democratic party and voters like in, people in Palm Beach County, Loudoun County, Fairfax County, the Detroit suburbs, people in California, white liberals in California, they don't know that. Like they're not voting. These people, all these white people, uh, these I people think, who normally would support Democrats in a heartbeat. Again, the woman. Uh, this is the kind of woman who made Joe Biden president. All the rich parents in the Barry Weiss article. When you get, if you combined this like shift of these white, rich white liberals, if you combined a shift in these people away from Democrats, not even two Republicans, but away from Democrats, and combined that with the massive shift towards Republicans by Hispanic voters in 2020, which we saw Trump pull off in Texas and Florida, then, yeah, absolutely, you could have a winning coalition in 2024 and beyond. Yeah, and it could have been a winning coalition in 2020. But white people in general in this country, especially suburban white people, didn't know what any of this stuff was. They didn't know what any of this stuff meant. Now, if you were on on social media, like younger people, they could like a lot of a lot of millennials and a lot of Zoomers, they could see what was coming. They could see that w what was happening because it was all over Instagram. It was all over every social media company was just blasting basically hate whitey messages nonstop. But you got to think about it. The average 35 year old, the average 40 year old, 45 year old, the average working professional with a wife and kids, they're working. They're not paying any – they're trying their best to keep their mental, their own mental health intact. They're trying to keep their family's mental health intact as they're being cooped up in their house, not allowed to go out and do anything. They're also trying to work remotely while they're at home around their family, which is in itself a headache. So they're having to adjust to this new COVID lifestyle. They don't know what any of this stuff is, and they're not – if they're not told – like if they don't receive mailers in the mail describing – the kind of anti-white initiatives that the left is trying to implement in the country, if they don't see it on Fox News, if they don't see it coming from President Trump, if they don't see it coming, which it didn't, unfortunately, he didn't even know what critical race theory was in the debate. He couldn't even define it. If they don't see that coming from the right and it being spelled out to them, they don't know what any of this stuff is. They go to the polls. They look around. They say the country is going to shit. They go to the polls and they vote for Joe Biden. Joe Biden's president is like, OK, good. We can get back to normal, get back to the good old Obama days. And that's kind of the way that's kind of their thinking. But so the school board in Palm Beach County, they uh, sided with the protesters, with the, the parents who decided who wanted white advantage taken out. They took it out. But the local Democratic Party censored them. 
and uh, over this, and two school board members actually declared that they would leave the Democratic Party as a result. This is how you get results. You have to organize. You can't sit back and just say, okay, I'll just be part of the silent majority and vote. Well, that's what a lot of Republicans did in 2020. How did that work out? Being part of the silent majority did not work in 2020. This isn't 1968. This is 1968. This isn't 1980. Right. This isn't 1972. This, this isn't even 2016. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Brian Bartning, and now they moved to New York. Brian Bartning, a, spell, a self-described independent and co-founder of EOS Lip Balm, became involved in the debate over critical race theory after his daughter's private New York City elementary school began implementing changes that included telling students in a video to check each other's words and actions for bias. He said, that's the opposite of what you should be telling a five-year-old. Bartning now runs the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, or FAIR, which aims to provide alternative education about race and corporate DEI trainings that do not in, uh, do not utilize ideas like anti-racism that have become popular in recent years. Bartoning avoids discussion of politics and FAIR's board of advisors purposely includes Democrats such as Harvard University professor Stephen Pinkner, Pinker, a donor to Biden's presidential campaign. So the, the moral of the story is simply if Republicans want to win, they've got to focus on stuff like this. Parents don't care about low taxes. I mean, they, they really don't like these suburban parents. And this is kind of something I was going to allude to in another political article about how Republicans are trying to capitalize on violence, but it's not going to work just because it's uh, it's not the 1960s back in those days. Yeah. A lot of parents were concerned about, they wanted their taxes cut because the swing voters were working class people. This, your swing voter was at the time someone who would be making the equivalent of today's $40,000, $35,000 a year. You know, lower income, lower middle class, um, working class people, they were very concerned about their taxes. The swing voter today makes about 80000 a year, 90000 a year. He's not that concerned about taxes, um, you know, especially if he has a wife who makes 60000 a year. They're bringing in a combined income of 140, 150. Taxes are kind of an afterthought. What what are what is a pressing concern is their children's education. They want their children to get qual uh, quality education. They want the teachers to focus on educating the kids, and they don't want their schools to be indoctrinating their kids. If Republicans would focus on stuff like this and stop focusing on regulations and taxes and uh, fiscal conservatism, they would sweep the suburbs. They would win in a massive landslide. But instead, they're trying to pull a, they're trying to pull a page out of the old 1960s textbook, which is uh, highlighting violent crime. And you see this on Fox News all the time. They're showing constant mugging, constant robberies, beatings, murders all going on in America's inner cities. And they're hoping that this will cause these swing voters to swing right. The problem is these swing voters don't live there. These swing voters will never live there. These swing voters have never lived there because they're parents and grandparents moved away from there. So these swing voters now live in areas that none of those criminals can afford to set foot in. Those criminals can't even afford a bus ticket to get to those areas, much less commit crimes in those areas. So this is an opinion article. So this is an opinion piece in Politico by Joshua Zeitz. He writes, law and order has worked for the GOP before. This crime boom might be different. And throughout the article, and we'll link it in the description below, um, it are, he argues that Republicans are continue to harp on this violent crime theme, hoping that they can pull what Richard Nixon did in the past. But he argues that back in those days, the, different, the key difference was the swing voters were working class and they lived in the outer ring – well, you actually, to, at the time, they were outer ring suburbs. Today, they would be considered inner ring suburbs right there next to the city. So like Georgetown, like back in back in those days, they didn't live in Loudoun County. They lived in Georgetown 
And so when Washington, D.C. burned to the ground in 1968, it wasn't like they were so far out in Loudoun County they couldn't see the flames. No, they could open up the door and they could see the flames. They, they could hear the, the riots going on. They were just a few streets over. So, for instance, between 1960 and 1970, the national crime rate ro rose by 176%. Between the 1940s and 1980s, the murder rate doubled. And it got to the point to where less than half of people surveyed didn't feel like it was safe to walk outside their house. Well, swing voters today don't have that fear. That's why at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement, there were a lot of swing voters that literally had no idea what Black Lives Matter was. People had no idea there were riots going on. They knew about Chauvin. They knew about the incident of, of George Floyd dying. They knew that people were using the term Black Lives Matter to show their support for people who are black people who are victims of police violence. But that was kind of the extent of it. They didn't have any idea that there were riots. And this was, mind you, this was two weeks after the riots had been had already started. This, this wasn't like this was, you know, two hours after the after the police precinct burned down in Minneapolis. But polling consistently shows that while a majority of Americans believe crime is a very or even the most serious problem facing the country, 59% in the recent Washington Post ABC poll, that's 59% who believe that crime is a serious problem, very few believe it is a problem in the places they actually live. So while 59% of Americans believe that violent crime is a rising problem in the country, only 17% say that it's a problem where they live. So in a country where... We kind of live in our own little world and we don't care what goes on in the city over, the state over. I mean, pointing out that violent crime is a problem there and that people aren't safe doesn't really mean anything to them because they can open up their front door and they look around and it's complete tranquility. Like for miles and miles, it's it's nice little McMansions and cookie cutter homes and manicured lawns and large, wide suburban streets and cul-de-sacs. And, you know, it's just like the 1980s. They're, they're, their world literally is that you pick up the 1980s and you move it to the suburbs and that's what you have. And that's that's the reality they live in. That's why only 17 percent uh, feels like they're unsafe. And so when Republicans try to pull pages from the playbooks of the 1960s, 1970s, it only goes so far because you have to meet people where they're at. You have to uh, you know, harp on things that affect their daily lives. And, you know, the left understood this. They understood that uh, a lot of uh, upper middle class people left to go to the suburbs and so if you want to change their perceptions of the history, if you want to change their perceptions of economics, you have to indoctrinate their children. And so by focusing on indoctrination and school, what, what's being taught in schools, Republicans are actually, actually have a chance of winning a lot of these independent voters over. And this Politico article demonstrates that the left is uh, deathly afraid of the, the time bomb that critical race theory is because, as they point out, two-thirds of Americans still don't know what it is. But among the third that do know what it is – independents oppose CRT by more than a two-to-one margin. So all Republicans have to do is educate the other two-thirds on what CRT is, and Republicans win in a landslide in 2022. If they run on it, that's key. Republicans have to embrace this. They have to embrace Absolutely. attacking CRT. They can't run from it. They can't say, let's just talk about uh, – I mean, Geraldo Rivera, I know on Fox News, was kind of complaining that Republicans are spending too much time talking about critical race theory. He's like, let's just stop talking about race. No, no, no you can't stop talking about race – when the left is literally rubbing it in your face. And they literally used race rights to burn the country to the ground last year. It, but, and again, this is why you can see the left running away from this, as I hinted before. Joy Reid, Terry McAuliffe, so many others, and even Obama. I forgot to mention, there was an interview Obama gave a while ago. I forget which news network it was. But he said, like, you know, he mockingly, he was like, you know, we've got all these issues going on. You know, we've got... Uh, uh, we've got, uh, inflation, we've got, uh, the, the Middle East, and Republicans want to talk about, uh, critical race theory. Uh, who knew? 
Like, who knew that was the most important issue? And again, it's he's trying to be coy, just like Joy Reid and just like Kamala Harris. He's trying to be coy and cute and funny about it. But you can tell they're scared when they're trying to run away from this. They realize this is not a winning issue for them. And also, it would be a winning issue for Republicans because it involves you being on offense for once. Mm-hmm. If you're on offense, you are winning. Hammer them and hammer them and hammer them. Keep them on defense, and absolutely you will win. We talked about this in our previous episode, our interview for episode 30 with uh, Tim Kilcullen, the uh, candidate for Virginia House of Delegates, who said he is certainly running against critical race theory as a Republican. And he, as he pointed out, the Republican nominee for Governor Glenn Youngkin is very much making critical race theory a major issue of his campaign. So certainly this Virginia election could be a bellwether. And m- maybe Virginia's already too far gone. Who knows? But No, no, I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. All right, right. Because certainly after the uh, after Northam's election in uh, 2017, a lot of – because that was a huge majority for him. People thought – and Tim Kaine got reelected in a landslide. And certainly people thought that. But if there ever was a chance to prove, A, it's not totally gone, and B – critical race theory is a winning issue for Republicans, then this off-year, thankfully it's an off-year, because again, Virginia along with New Jersey is one of those weird states with off-year elections, then this could be a roadmap for 2022. That's why Republicans have to make this issue of indoctrinating young white children an issue, because if they make that an issue, these suburban voters in Fairfax County and Loudoun County and Prince William County they're going to turn against that, and they're going to vote straight ticket Republican to make sure that's defeated. They won't even – yeah, it's not even that they'll just simply not vote for Democrats. They will actively vote for Republicans because that's half the battle. You get them away from the Democrats, and you vote in favor of the Republican Party. All right, so that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Be sure, as always, to follow all of our latest content at righttakepodcast.com, all the list of podcast platforms and social media websites where we are available righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe and feel free to support the show if you are feeling so generous righttakepodcast.com slash support we'll talk to you next week guys